0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Good evening. And joining me, as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, science created him, now Chuck Norris must destroy him. <laughs> it's Ed Davis. How the devil are you there?
1: I'm good. I know basically no chuck norris films so i'm gonna say invasion usa is oh, that no. tagline it's, from
0: it's it's the most chuck norris sounding film ever silent rage <laughs> wow what Which, is that one about um i've got no idea but i know that science created him <laughs> and chuck norris must destroy him um i don't I, I think i've probably never seen a chuck norris film other than maybe invasion usa and dodgeball
1: yeah i was going to say dodgeball is i think the only film i've ever actually seen him in
0: yeah, I mean, Dodgeball, the guys who made that must be kind of like, you know, kicking themselves now. They've had Lance Armstrong as an inspirational speaker and Chuck Norris, who I'm sure they were aware was probably a right wing nut job at the time, but uh, <laughs> you know, even as an ironic figure of fun, uh, it seems a little misjudged.
1: I, I've long said, well, I say long, at least over the last couple of years, that they should re-edit. Uh, they should re-edit the Lance Armstrong scene and just replace it with whoever got his gold medals after they were taken away, right? whoever mm. got his uh, wins. Um, well, I, that's probably I, about 12 different people, but I think it'd be funny if they just crammed 12 people into the frame with Vince Vaughn.
0: Yeah, it'd be like, oh, random French dude, uh, speak <laughs> to me at a bar. It wouldn't make any sense, because no one knows any cyclists. Anyway, that kind of uh, dodgeball related uh, fiasco aside, let's get into some news One of our favourite TV shows, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the um, ongoing, disgusting series of adventures of uh, kind of degenerate bar owners in Philadelphia um, has somehow seen it through to be renewed uh, to, what is it, 14 seasons they're going to go to?
1: Yeah, the 11th has just wrapped up and they were already confirmed for 12th, but this week, 13 and 14, they were picked up for.
0: Wow, that is pretty kind of, I mean, that would I think that puts it in record-breaking territory, doesn't it? It's safe to say.
1: Yeah, that makes it the joint longest-running live-action sitcom in US television history, along with The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. I don't
0: do even know what that is.
1: Neither do I, but I'm pretty sure it's probably a lot more wholesome than It's Always Sony in Philadelphia was, mm, or is.
0: Probably like Doris Day in it or something. And are we actually, we're recording this on Doris Day's birthday. Uh, she's oh, wow. 92 today.
1: And uh, still alive, which always surprises me.
0: Yeah. Because she's not
1: done very much in a very long time.
0: No, no, waiting for that Calamity Jane reboot. But, oh, I watched Calamity Jane at Christmas. It's really fun. But then there's a really uncomfortable racist bit in the middle, uh, which is <laughs> the way I'm finding a lot of old films recently, most notably Peter Pan, which I watched for Ooh, the yeah. first time. And I'm like, oh, this is a really fun film. Oh, no, this is, look, this is bad. There's some kind of making fun of genocide here.
1: Yeah. And then you think, oh, well, you know, it was the 1960s or the 50s, whatever. And then you think, oh, yeah, Pan came out last year.
0: <laughs> We're making some... the same mistakes over and over again. So somehow we're getting worse. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, what does the uh, always sunny renewal tell us? Uh, is there just a huge appetite for, you know, kind of hideous awfulness, or is it just uh, those guys are having just too much fun to stop?
1: I, I think it definitely is. It has to be because they seriously enjoy doing it. Because those guys have such huge control over the production of the show and the the writing and everything and it really is dependent on them wanting to continue doing it. Uh, so obviously they, they have more ideas for how to horribly treat Cricket, who mm. I think the end of the, the series just has to be him being forced through a meat grinder or something because there's, <laughs> there's not much more they can do to that guy. Um, yeah. After he admitted that he was involved in a dog orgy in this most recent <laughs> season. Um, but yeah, I think I think it is that also, I think it's a, a sign of that show's uh, legacy which is a strange thing to say about about that show because it is a, a a series that has was very instrumental in allowing fx to establish this kind of um beachhead as the place for a very kind of uh edgy hip comedy or comedy that uh where the creators could come in they probably wouldn't be uh they, their shows wouldn't be noted to death you know they would be allowed. People like Louis C.K. would be able to come in, or you know the the Archer guys can come in and do pretty much whatever they want, um, mm. and and they give them a certain amount of freedom, and they allowed them to become known for comedy as much as for something like The Shield or Terriers.
0: Mm. mm. Just yeah. interesting. You should mention uh, Louis C.K. There. It was kind of uh, notable that Horace and Pete, his kind of new web series, was nominated for an award. I'm presuming it's Emmys. Is it? in the best drama category. Is that a surprise?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm not, I don't think it, it's it been nominated for Emmys yet, but yeah, I think it, that's a the show that has kind of taken the world by storm in kind of the very minor way that, you know, people on the internet are obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. But that's a an experiment that appears to have paid off incredibly well, the idea of making a show uh, that no one knows about, then just sending out an email to people on your mailing list saying hey i've made this new show if you pay five dollars you can watch the first episode and then allowing people to pay i think it's three dollars per episode subsequently mm. uh, which is uh, a a model that i think only he could do is very much similar to the like the radiohead releasing an album that anyone can pay anything for you need to mm. be fairly secure to do it but it's kind of been a an experiment in doing a show that no one else probably would be that interested in putting out there and it being kind of widely acclaimed and accepted in a way that I don't think anyone was expecting. And it's nice that he's doing more stuff considering he's taking a break from doing his uh, FX show.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's um, kind of interesting that he make that model work with... Uh, he did his stand-up special the same way, didn't he? I think he just said, I'm going to do a stand-up special... Uh, you can pay this, this $5 for it. Uh, I don't care what you do with it. You'll get it like, downloaded to your computer. Um, it's going to cost this much to do. Your money will cover this. It will cover paying everyone, and then I'll give the rest to charity and then sell the rights to Netflix, which is exactly what happened. Mm. Um, and that's a really great model that, yeah, like I say, only see, he seems to be able to get away with.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's very, very exciting, but also one of those things where you think, <laughs> I don't know how anyone else is really going to be able to kind of uh, transfer this and
0: mm, I think Aziz Ansari did it didn't he for one of his recent specials oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of a similar thing on a on a smaller scale but
1: again it's you know. you're, you're looking at people who are already fairly established and who I think have a certain they've established a certain degree of trust with their audience where people are willing to go along with it uh, I feel mm-hmm. like that's not something that someone who's new could do it but it's also not something that like a corporation could do
0: yeah yeah because yeah. they will stab you in the back mm-hmm. Um quite literally in some cases we were talking about uh, batman versus superman last week and uh, the the big hoo ha about kind of critics and the, the the absolute pacing it's taken and how that hasn't mattered a jot at the box office but this week we've seen uh, something quite extraordinary we've seen a drop in box office takings that is should we say quite big
1: yeah i think that's uh, mild uh, it dropped uh, currently, at the time, the estimated drop is about 69% from its opening weekend, which is one of the worst ever for film opening as big as it did. Because usually a film opens really big and it has enough momentum to hold at least reasonably well uh, mm. in its second weekend. But this one, it really did go completely off a cliff and still was number one at the US box office. But uh, it, was, it fell a huge amount, despite the fact that no one opened any films op- opposite it. Uh, mm. Which is what usually when you see a drop like that it's because people came in to kind of take away their audience, and uh what you see this time is that the audience had already left
0: Hmm. yeah, and it's it's interesting that like you say it's sixty nine per cent I've seen estimates up to like eighty one per cent it was eighty one per
1: cent Friday to friday
0: oh okay, that's pretty it's pretty bad, bad yeah, <laughs> yeah. And what does this mean for the film? Like, Is it then therefore judged as a hit or a a flop or what? Well,
1: some articles have said that it's a flop now. I think that's maybe a little too drastic, but it does mean that Warner Brothers probably definitely will lose money on it. Because the estimate that a lot of people have is that it needs to earn at least a billion dollars to break even worldwide. And at least because of the way that the, the profits are divided up, which is that studios take like 50 60% of the gross in the US and 30 to 40% internationally it would need to do like 4 500 million dollars in the US and then make the rest up internationally and now it looks like it's going to earn like about 360 370 in the US so they'll need mm-hmm. to do a huge amount of international business but the problem is that the international business is also not great like it earned like 200 million or something last weekend and where it opened everywhere and uh internationally and then this weekend it fell to 84 million and mm-hmm. in places like china in, in china it is now being beaten by zootopia even though zootopia is five weekends old
0: mm. and zootopia in china is called crazy animal city <laughs> i learned that today that's true wow Zoot- mm. that's uh that's at
1: least that makes a little more sense than calling it Zootropolis in the U- UK.
0: Yeah, like I didn't really understand why the change. And then I was thinking, maybe it's a U2 album. And then I was like, no, that wasn't even called Zootopia. Yeah, I don't really get it. It's... I mean, Zootropolis is a cool sounding name, yeah, but it doesn't really have the same... like. Like, It doesn't make any sense. It's a Zootopia.
1: Yeah, you lose the pun. But also, yeah. the reason why, because I looked into this because I found it to be like perplexing. I was wondering if... They were going after like the 10 year olds who are really into old Fritz Lang movies. Mm. Um, But.
0: (laughs) Well, I suppose if you're going to be a 10 year old and you're going to rename an animal themed movie to be like a Fritz Lang movie, you should be calling it Petropolis. (laughs) That actually would be
1: fantastic. Uh, Mm. But then people think it's about like a gas guzzling city. Um, (laughs) Yeah, uh, I guess so. But the reason why it's so utterly mundane is that apparently there's a Danish zoo called Zootopia and they have the rights so it affects its release in only the UK. (laughs) Um, Wow. So I don't know why it only affects it in the UK, but that's why it's been renamed Zootropolis there and nowhere else, except China, obviously, where they've gone for a slightly more prosaic title.
0: (laughs) Yeah, say what you see. Uh, It's a crazy animal city. Awesome. Anyway, what the fuck are we talking about? Batman vs Superman, what's it doing in China?
1: Uh, Basically, it, it, it... had a good same in the u.s but kind of on steroids where it had a good opening weekend and then immediately dropped and had, there is no interest in it there at all anymore partly because audiences there don't care for it but also because uh, the chinese distributors opened lots of you know local films opposite opposite it, and that's where most of the interest with the audience in china is is with chinese movies as opposed to hollywood fair which is very strictly controlled over there
0: Mm, mm, fair and for good reason it's uh it's a disgusting substance <laughs> and uh you uh shouldn't mess around with it the last bit of news we have this week is uh something that i found quite interesting robin wright has uh joined the class of blade runner two which uh, is something i would forgotten that was even happening and now that has reminded me that it is happening but it's also brought to my mind the fact that harrison ford appears to be doing uh, kind of revisiting all these iconic characters, like he did Han Solo, he's doing Indiana Jones, and now Rick Deckard. Um, and I kind of just wondered what that's all about. Is it? Is it? The, I, thought I saw someone on uh, Twitter refer to it as his kind of victory lap,
1: because
0: hmm. uh, uh, I mean, given that it's pretty obvious that Deckard is an android, in in Thingy, he's going to be older, and that's not going to make a whole lot of sense. Um, I don't really know what's happening here.
1: Yeah, it definitely seems to be them taking the interpretation, the the Harrison Ford interpretation that Deckard isn't a replicant Mm. and making that canon as opposed to Ridley Scott's interpretation, which that he was. And and they're, I mean, they're both valid interpretations because it's not explicitly said in the film, but I've always been of the opinion that the Deckard being a replicant is the more interesting one. Mm. Uh, And so, yeah, it's a very strange one, unless they are going to say that, like, He was the replicant who figured out how to escape the programming and live a full life.
0: And grow older.
1: Yeah. He decided to ruin it for himself by allowing him to live forever, but also he would age like a human as opposed to just being an immortal. Yeah, maybe he
0: got more grey hair and (laughs) like old looking as the new software updates came in.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, that's Apple for you. I think it, it is at least partly because... Uh, since the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out, and even for a few years before then, his career has mainly consisted of him being in films that don't do very well. You've got things like Extraordinary Measures, Morning Glory, The Expendables 3, I think, one of them. And mm. yeah, he's basically not had a hugely successful run, and I think maybe he's reaching the point where he thinks, I want to be in films that people actually see again, and I want to get big paychecks. Uh, mm mm-hmm. Which I think is is like fair enough. He's done enough to to earn it, and uh, I personally am really looking forward to Two Wit Two Ness.
0: Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think um, he definitely should revisit the Mosquito Coast. <laughs> um, that's one of his that I uh, that I greatly enjoyed. Even more and, American graffiti. Yep, that would be a, a decent one. What really lies beneath? <laughs> that could that could work out. But, like, yeah, I'm just kind of like, he he seems to be like making hay while the sun shines. Mm. Uh, it seems to be. And fair play to him, I guess. He's Harrison Ford. He can do what the hell he likes.
1: Yeah, he's just appeared in one of the most successful films of all time, uh, well into his 70s. So I think he's allowed to kind of rest on his laurels a bit.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is the main topic of conversation this week, Ed? We are talking about true crime. Hmm, and we're talking about it for a particular reason. Is because uh, Serial season two has just ended this week. Uh, we'll be talking about the uh, ins and outs of season two. So if you haven't listened to all of that, please do catch up before you listen to this. Um, but first, I want to kind of get into the the, the kind of the uh, the kind of argument about what is true crime uh, like. Where does true crime begin and documentary end?
1: Yeah, well, I think true crime, you kind of have to go into the the realm of literature. True crime books are obviously kind of a genre that's been around for a very long time. And it's kind of, in a sense, it kind of grows out of exploitation, kind of tabloid journalism, in a sense, uh, sense, taking kind of very lurid tales and retelling them in such a way that uh, people can kind of, you know, get a vicarious thrill out of reading about horrible deaths and murders and such. And I think that, uh, there are lots of true crime documentaries. Uh, I think uh, that the, the way, the point at which they demarcate is that true crime, I think in general, are seen as more as ones that deal with very specific cases. And in some cases, uh, in, in some instances, they will have kind of um, activist qualities to them in the sense that, you will get films where they look at a, or TV series, where they look at a very specific case and then use that to make broader points about, say, the American justice system.
0: Hmm. I suppose the, the poster boy for this kind of thing would be something like The Thin Blue Line, which is a documentary uh, from the late 70s, early 80s? Uh, uh, or yeah, mid-80s? Yeah, the, the mid to late 80s. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, just out by a decade there, it's fine. Well, that's when the crime um, happened. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Uh, but you know, it's a documentary uh, about crime that was committed, and they put the wrong guy away, and through kind of various retellings of the story, and they managed to find the guy who actually did it, which is kind of amazing. And that's the film that kind of well popularized it, I guess. But I mean, there's obviously stuff before that, but that's the the, the kind of big one that I can think of.
1: It's definitely one that I think uh, pioneered a couple of techniques that would get used a lot, which is the use of recreations, uh, artistic recreations to uh, rebuild the the, the the crime itself and the pursuit, which is a big mm. thing that Errol Morris brought to that. It wasn't just interviewing people. It was taking, you know, these slightly expressionistic visual style to uh, rebuild the crime on screen.
0: Mm. Mm. Um, and yeah, those kind of things have been kind of, they echo down the ages and we still see them used today. But uh, let's get into Serial. Uh, Serial is, uh, for those who don't know, uh, you should know, it's a very, very popular podcast, probably the most popular one ever. Is that right?
1: It's definitely up there. Uh, It's certainly, I think, the one that for a lot of people is their first podcast. You know, I think Mm. for a lot of people, you know, I've been listening to podcasts since 2008, I think, or 2007. But a lot of people... For, for a lot of people, they didn't really know what a podcast was until a couple of years ago, and and Serial was the one that really kind of became a cross kind of cultural event to the extent that, like, they had parodies of it on Saturday Night Live and, um, you know, various internet sketch groups kind of making fun of it, which I think denotes a level of kind of cross-cultural appeal that you don't get from, say, um, WTF.
0: mm for those of you who don't know, uh, Serial tells one story per season uh, and does it week by week uh, with the presenter Sarah Koenig, who kind of gives an overview at the start and then uh, kind of dispenses the details in uh, kind of like methadone uh, <laughs> quantities uh, to hook you in. The first season was uh, hugely successful, um, which was about a murder case in Baltimore, the murder of a young girl called uh, Hay. Uh, and the imprisonment of her boyfriend, a guy called Adnan Syed, um, who was put away on what appears on the surface as incredibly thin evidence, Um, but there are way more questions about the case than answers, and the amazing thing about Serial is that halfway through, uh, the huge audience promptly attempted to solve the crime themselves, and uh, obviously with varying degrees of success and crazy theories floating around everywhere, um, it was ultimately, even though uh, by the end of the season, the the boyfriend is still in jail, but there is now kind of appeals happening. Um, it was a kind of like a hugely momentous crossover thing. And it was uh, provided a lot of, I uh, hate the phrase, water cooler moments where, you know, you would go in kind of you'd meet people and you'd say, oh, have you heard the latest cereal yet? Are you up to date with cereal? And uh, that was kind of pretty unheard of for a podcast.
1: Yeah, uh, the... Christmas after the last episode aired, the first uh, the first season, I was back in the UK, I was staying with friends up in the Lake District, and uh, we all went out for a, a long walk one day around New Year's, and there just erupted a kind of a, a susurrus of conversation where everyone was talking about it, where all of these people had started listening to it and were saying, you know, did you think he really did it? Do you think he did mm. it, or do you think he's innocent? And it was like for hours of conversation just about that and that was a thing where that had never ever happened before with me and and podcasts you know I would have like me and you would talk about specific bits from Comedy Bang Bang or whatever Hmm. but it was never like something where a group of people could have a sustained discussion about a, a podcast it definitely felt like even though the the form had been around for a while I mean our we predate serial, you know. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, it's not, it definitely isn't the first podcast, and there were like thousands upon thousands of them that already existed before then. It definitely felt like the one that really broke through in a major
0: way. Mm. And this season, uh, season two, um, was no less fascinating, um, but has uh, suffered from, should we call it, a uh, difficult second album syndrome in that, like, before it really started, it was on a hiding to nothing, because no matter what they did, um, it was going to be a tough act to follow the first season. The second season decided not to focus on a murder mystery at its heart. It decided to focus on the Bowie Bergdor case. Bowie Bugdor was the American soldier who uh, it appears left his post during the war against terror. don't know how that's going. Uh, in Afghanistan, just kind of wandered off the base and was held by the Taliban for five years, and was uh, promptly returned in exchange for five prisoners from Guantanamo Bay, um, which uh, the surface is the details that everyone knows, but uh, over the course of the last uh, 10 episodes of of Serial Season 2, we have found out there is a little bit more to it than that, and there are kind of uh, uh, corridors of power and weird things going on above everyone's head that uh, everyone is kind of uh, completely unaware of. What did you think to season two, Ed? Because uh, it's been perceived by many as a disappointment, but also by many as, regardless of how you feel about it, an outstanding piece of journalism.
1: Yeah, I kind of feel that it is better journalistically than season one. I did enjoy season one a lot, and I did like the. the I I feel like it was a great use of the podcast format, which is where you take, like you say, you take a story and you pass it out week to week, and that is very enticing and engaging and uh, usually when and also the fact that the show was being made as it was uh being released so that you could get that level of of involvement from people it wasn't like you know when they make a tv series like something like the staircase where the show is already made by the time it airs you know you, people can't get involved and uh go on reddit obviously they couldn't because it was made in like the early 2000s but you know that it definitely felt like a hybrid of a very familiar form uh, in a new medium. And so that was very impressive, but it wasn't... You you did get a sense that there wasn't a huge amount of uh, kind of uh, journalistic rigor to it, or or there wasn't as much resources behind it as perhaps you would have liked to have seen because it was a new venture, whereas this one is very successful, so the team's bigger, as as evidenced by the, the sheer number of people that Sarah Koenig listed at the end of the final episode Uh, and it was co-produced by Annapurna Pictures who is uh, Megan Ellison's company um, which uh, was kind of a fascinating partnership to see happen Uh, but I think that it was, they took a story that was inherently less easy to summarise than the Adnan Syed one something that was very politically charged and they kind of really delved into every possible kind of nook and cranny of it and I feel like they kind of doubled down on the 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 difficulty of the second season by tackling something that is incredibly amorphous and ambitious and inherently less satisfying to an audience, but still kind of persevering and delivering something that I found like really fascinating because it touches on so many different elements of uh of the war on terror, but also the very fractious political situation in the United States.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's it's something that, like, if you summarise the first season, it is a very simple story of who killed Hay, or did Adnan kill Hay, and that's the 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 question that it attempts to answer. Whereas season two is, uh, first of all, you get over the fact that they we have taped conversation with Baal Bergdorf, which is, um, you know, a coup in itself, hmm. um, and then we get the the question for the first few episodes: Why did he leave the base? Then we were like, once you, you kind of Bo disappears from the story in the middle, uh, it becomes you know, what were we doing there? Uh, why did we release these prisoners? Um, what on earth, uh, who does anyone know what this war is about? Ultimately, mm-hmm. is what it boils down to. And uh, the answers are, whilst never, uh, kind of 100% certain, uh, it does ask the questions that. Um, I kind of never really thought about that. Like you, you hear high-ranking officers uh, talking on the podcast openly about how, you know, they started a war in a country where it was already been at war constantly. There There is like 20 different wars going on at the same time. And theirs was just a minor <laughs> kind of incursion like to everyone else who was fighting. And it was kind of crazy the way that like this whole geopolitical thing is, kind of covered in such detail by the show, but also I still am not really any closer to understanding it.
1: Yeah, I think that that points to the, the
0: like I say, the ambition of it all
1: to tackle something that is a difficult situation that very few people in the world actually do understand, because you are talking about a country that is divided by all these different tribal loyalties. And, you know, this is one of the many reasons why the whole situation there has been such an ungodly mess for more than a decade with the... the you know the American military and the the British military and all of the people, the agents going in there, not really understanding who all these people are, who hates who, who can you trust, and that providing this kind of uh, incredibly difficult backdrop into which you know one soldier it decides to take and a incredibly ill advised action, uh, which then kind of. Uh, reverberates out in ways that are kind of hard to track and hard to quantify.
0: What was also notable about this second season is the level of access uh, mm. that Koenig and her team were were kind of uh, able to bring to it. I mean, obviously, Mark Boll, the, the guy who, he wrote The Hurt Locker, didn't he, I think?
1: Yeah, and I think he, I think he also wrote Zero Dark Thirty.
0: Ah, okay, cool. Uh, he'd obviously already recorded some interviews with Bergdorf but i think obviously the success of the first season had opened quite a few doors uh, to them
1: yeah definitely it's the sort of thing that you they they absolutely couldn't have tackled as their first as their first season they needed the uh, the success of the kind of the smaller more focused story to allow them the resources and the time and the kind of the audience um trust really to to do that because i do feel like the model of serial does demand a lot from an audience where they are willing to follow this story wherever it will go, uh for, for for months at a time, uh, knowing as well to some extent that even Sarah Koenig herself doesn't really know where it's gonna go. She didn't really know, she admitted that she didn't really know where the the Adnan Syed story was gonna go. She at, you know they, they changed the production of the second season when it became apparent that they were getting more material than they knew what to do with, so they switched from a weekly to a fortnightly schedule. So, the, you know, you have to go in a, uh, with a certain amount of trust that this show will uh, kind of reward you for your time, uh, which is a lot to ask from an audience, but I do feel it's something that uh, they earned with the first season and that's why they felt they could go really big this time around.
0: Hmm. I wonder where they'll go with the Season 3. I mean, I, I can't imagine they won't do a Season 3, but do you think they will try and return to something a little less sprawling, I guess?
1: Well, there was talk uh, around about the time that the second they they announced that the second one was due to start that the second and third were being made concurrently. So, I'm not sure if they they'd have the resources to do two big stories at once. Maybe the next one will be a little smaller, but uh, I, I would hope that they would try and do this kind of long-form journalism, trying to dig deep into tricky stories, even if uh, it may not capture the the water cooler, the, the zeitgeisty kind of nature of the first season.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, maybe they could do a kind of who shot JR. Yeah. <laughs> who really did shoot JR. Um, but it's, it's fascinating that, like, Serial has been very successful, but the other kind of true crime, I guess... Uh, kind of cultural artefact that's been uh, a hot topic around uh, this year. has been Making a Murderer, the Netflix Mm. original series, um, which is kind of extraordinary and does a very, very similar thing to the first season of Serial, which is uh, explore um, what appears to be a case of uh, wrongful conviction. Uh, Well, it definitely is a case of wrongful, wrongful conviction in the first sense, but then also might turn into a second one. Um, and that has been immensely successful.
1: Yeah, that is a show that was picked up by Netflix that was produced by these two these two female filmmakers who were living in New York and then they saw a news story about this guy, Stephen Avery, who had been wrongfully convicted of uh, rape and sexual assault in the 1980s and then spent 18 years in prison uh, and then came out and then started suing the... Uh, Manitowoc uh, Police Department in Wisconsin and then is accused of murder Uh, and then they up sticks and moved to Wisconsin and followed this case for the better part of a decade Uh, and then assembled it all and then gave it to Netflix and Netflix said oh yeah we'll we'll put this out as a TV show which is uh, incredible uh, for them that it all paid off the the 10 years or so that they they completely changed their lives in order to follow the story but also, you know, did make for like serial kind of real water cooler television where people were watching it all at the same time, more or less, and then discussing it kind of kind of in fevered tones about, you know, again, the question of did he really do it, you know, that sort of thing, uh, which is mm. a, a kind of a hard thing to, to get that level of buzz and engagement from an audience.
0: Mm. And it's, it's weird as well, because like, I mean, I know dozens of people have watched it now. Uh, I'm sure we all do. And it's a very interesting kind of idea that TV show can kind of expose the legal system's flaws or expose what appears to be kind of incompetence or conspiracy amongst law enforcement. But also, uh, weirdly, uh, kind of invites uh, trial by audience Mm because the very first question that most people ask you is, you know, do you think he did it?
1: Yeah, I think that that is something that you get in a lot with, with, with true crime stories, any kind of high-profile crime story that invites that. I think that's one of the reasons why The People vs. O.J. Simpson has been such a big success is that even though that is a case that is uh, more than 20 years old and is one of the most high-profile cases in you know American uh, judicial history because it was broadcast to the entire country and was watched by millions upon millions of people, there is still that question, you know, did he really kill his wife and, and Ron Goldman? You know, that is something that, uh, you know, kind of still gives people a charge and, you know, kind of spurs debate and discussion. Uh, and I think that is something that is, is very well suited to a kind of a, a serialized narrative where you can drop in uh, at the end of every episode, you can drop in a new detail that throws things completely for a loop and people have to, you know, hit play on the next episode.
0: Mm, mm. there is a big distinction between something like we, we said at the start of the episode kind of true crime being exploitative or being kind of uh cause-driven mm. um most of the stuff that deals with uh kind of the cause-driven side is talking about injustice so things like um the thin blue line as we said uh the um robin hood hills films the Paradise lost films um The kind of series about, you know, wrongfully convicted people making a murderer, murder on a Sunday morning, which is a really great film. Uh, The Staircase, Uh, The Jinx, I guess, um, is an interesting case. Uh, They are polar opposites to, you know, what you might see on crime TV, uh, on the kind of the lower reaches of your cable box. You know, the kind of the Dharma files and, uh, you know, kind of inside the mind of Ed Gein and all that kind of shit.
1: Yeah, or something that I... Because I was trying to think of examples of of documentaries that I would consider to be true crime and exploitative would be something like The Imposter, Mm. which is a documentary that I actually do quite like and I do think is a very exceptionally well put together piece of work, but that is a case where the filmmakers take this incredible and crazy story of a... uh, Is he Spanish or French? He's a French guy. French guy who was... Uh, clearly uh, in his teens being taken in by a texas family pretending to be their lost kind of child who is meant to be like 11 or 12 or something uh, mm. and is taking like an insane story and exploring all the details of it but it's not really you know it's not making a broader case about like the u.s foster system or something it is very much taking saying hey this is an insane thing that happened uh, and then giving you all of the details whereas the, the sort of things that we've mentioned already, uh, something like uh, making of a murderer, making a murderer, the, the, the o- over kind of overwhelming point of that is to point out the flaws, in the American justice system that would allow for, you know, terrible evidence to be presented possible corruption to take place and not be dis- not be discovered or to be discovered and to be ignored. Uh, and and that case you are part of it is you know wanting to get people engaged and to provide people with the the thrill that they need to keep watching but part of it is to just raise these very kind of pointed questions saying you know if this could happen to this guy how many wrongful convictions uh are there out there
0: mm. yeah i mean that's i, mean, I can't remember what the, the uh, documentary we saw at doc fest a couple of years ago was but it was about um... Privatized prisons, and Mm. about how um, you know there are mandatory sentences for what appear to be very lenient crimes. Um, And with when you've got privatized prisons and and towns that grow up around prisons, you need prisoners to (laughs) kind of keep them profitable, I guess. And if you think about the evidence that Adnan Syed and, and Stephen Avery were put away on, yeah, that's sure, I'm sure that's just the tip of a very awful iceberg. That or that is you, kind of rotten to its core.
1: Or if you look at the case of, in the thin blue line, the fact that the police, in that case, a policeman had been murdered and they needed to have someone because it looked very bad for the department to have a police killer out in the world. Uh, and they just basically went for the guy that best fit, you know, what they thought that someone could be and who they felt they could convict. Mm. Uh, and how the justice is not as impartial as people would want it to be and how impartial as it should be for, you know, a civilised society to function.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. and like for all the debates about whether the people in Serial Season 1 or Making a Murderer did or didn't do the crime, the thing that is very obviously presented from the documentaries, no matter how biased they may appear or one-sided they may appear, is that they... that these people certainly didn't do the crimes as the prosecution said they did.
1: Yeah, that, and that they were not given a fair trial.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But then there was—I think that was probably the worst moment of serial, when Sarah Koenig meets with a detective, I think, and she says, "You know, what do you think of the evidence in this case?" And he's like, mm? "It's pretty strong to me." I'm mm. Like, what? And then I was like, "Well, he must have put away people on. Well, he must have kind of, you know, brought cases that were based on considerably less." yeah which is terrifying
1: yeah it is it, it, but i think that's it's not something that i think is should be surprising to people uh, but i think the fact that it is points out the need for these kind of slightly sensationalized uh, stories that are able to just kind of say hey this is a thing that maybe you've forgotten about that mm-hmm. you do need things like the innocence project to go out there and to kind of work with people to try and, you know, hold people accountable for convictions that maybe are not on the up and up. Especially in a situation like, like you say, where you have a uh, industrialized prison system, a privatized prison system where, you know, you need to have, you know, you need to have bodies going into the prisons because if you don't have that, then you don't have, then people lose money. Uh, And that's uh, something you can't have in capitalism.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, capitalism is ruins everything. Mm-hmm. That's what we've learned. Why do you think that there is uh, such a, a kind of a glut of these true crime things coming? And it's really only been in the last year or so since kind of Serial and the Jinx with the Vanguard of that. Why do you think that? Is it suddenly this has all come out? Is it because Serial was very successful and now you're seeing a lot of things have a rushed in production? Or like I imagine making The murder was making a Murderer was sat around at Netflix for a while. Um, and then they decide to put it out in the wake of serial or or do you think there's just suddenly some kind of uh some kind of cultural need for this stuff
1: i think it is something that has existed obviously it's existed for a very long time and the the true crime market is kind of always thriving because there are always hundreds new titles being released there are always dozens more kind of lurid front covers in bookshops uh (laughs) just kind of like pictures of uh incredibly kind of uh, bloody typefaces and things like that or very hard-looking men just kind of sitting on the front cover but i feel like something like serial which was you know it has the kind of uh this american life stamp of approval because it's a spin-off of that it has the uh national raid the the kind of public radio kind of dulcet tones of sarah koenig it lends a level of credibility to it and a level of uh, to an extent prestige that I think the other kind of true crime literature, but also true crime shows, the sort of things that get played on like network television at like 10 pm. at night and you know they kind of like she was a a beautiful young bride who went out for a walk and she never came back, you know something that it, it takes what is something that people you know, would watch and maybe be slightly ashamed about it, and then presents it in a way where they can actually talk about it at dinner parties. And I feel that the sanitization maybe, of it, uh, or the kind of uh, the gentrification of true crime, to an extent, is why there's been a glut of them, because suddenly it's something that uh, people feel like they can watch and that can generate buzz, as opposed to a thing that, you know, is, is seen as in some way kind of exploitative and trashy and shameful.
0: Mm. it's so good that like privileged white people can talk about how dreadful it is to be poor in America and have no <laughs> legal counsel Do you know what I mean it's, uh, it's kind of a weird thing all these shows are you know, hugely successful and you know the one connecting thing about all the people who uh, the, the wrong end of this are kind of like you know poor people who can't really defend themselves mm. or people who are kind of uh, ill-equipped to defend themselves should we say Um, But then I suppose at the other end of the spectrum there's the Jinx, where it's uh, bringing down some some rich white dude.
1: Yeah, so at least uh, least one is being taken down. The, The Jinx is, I think, an interesting one, because that is one where I do feel it definitely falls towards the exploitation end of it. Where it isn't really making a broader statement about the nature of the justice system, other than, I guess, the fact that if you're really rich, you can get away with stuff. But that's that's less an indictment of the system than an indictment of one particular man and his huge fortune. Mm. Uh, but it definitely is kind of playing up the crazy details of his story about his wife disappearing, about you know cross dressing, about chopping a person up and putting them into the bay of a of a city and getting away with it, even though he admits that he did kill them and chop them up. Uh, you know that is very much towards the exploitation end of it, as opposed to, and I think that's why. Uh, And again, I think the fact that that aired on HBO, which is a a channel that has been associated with kind of prestige drama and has really been seen as being at the forefront of the TV revolution, that legitimizes it in a way that I don't think that would have happened if it aired anywhere else or if it was just kind of a book about Robert Durst. Uh, Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be given quite the cultural cachet that it ended up having.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that's kind of true crime. Everybody, I would recommend everyone listen to uh, the first couple of seasons of Serial. I'm fascinated to see where it's going to go. What have we got for recommendations this week, Ed? I'm going to
1: recommend an Australian film that I watched just last night, and which I guess kind of is a true crime film called *Breaker Morant*, which is directed by Bruce Berriford, who is most known for directing *Driving Miss Daisy*. This is one of his earlier films. And it's about the true story of a trial in which three Australian soldiers who were working for the British Army during the Boer War were brought upon war crimes. Um, One of the earliest cases of people being held to account for doing horrible things during war. In this case, the murder of uh, the execution of uh, Boer soldiers and a, a German missionary and the film is a recreation of the trial and the various ins and outs of the discussion and the debate, which is essentially saying that this crime is a thing that happened, these men were involved in the deaths of these men, and but the real question is, how can this be judged to be an immoral thing to do when you're talking about a conflict in which the British army sanctioned the creation of concentration camps and who kind of sanctioned widespread destruction and death in other areas and in that respect it is kind of like something like Kubrick's uh, Paths of Glory which is another great film but uh, it's a very very entertaining film as well because um, I've long held that the courtroom drama is one of the sturdier genres it's very easy to make a good one uh, and very hard to kind of go to either end of the extreme with it but this is is one of the best I've seen in part because it has a kind of a a raucous and uh, rowdy aspect to it because Uh, Most of the cross-examinations at some point involve the Australian uh, defendants calling the witnesses bastards and things like that, uh, which is uh, very entertaining. And it also has a great performance by Edward Woodward. Uh, And it's uh, currently available on Criterion uh, Blu-ray, but also on their Hulu page. So I'd really recommend people check it out.
0: I think I've seen too much Game of Thrones now that if I was ever... In a courtroom situation, I would just stop the deliberations and demand trial by combat, <laughs> yeah. which is something that I think that someone should edit into all courtroom films to make them more exciting.
1: Well, one of the things that's fun about Breaking Morant is at one point, because it's it's been it's taking place in a military base, at one point they are attacked by uh, Boer um, raiders. And because they need every available hand, they let the soldiers out and give them machine guns in order to help defend the base. And I was thinking, you know what, the verdicts could really use kind of a gun battle to break out in which Paul Newman uh, gets to just kind of, and the, the the representatives of the Catholic Hospital just start kind of trading shots with each other.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, I can't think of uh, legal drama, courtroom dramas without thinking of the Rural Drura from <laughs> from 30 Rock. Yeah, I just can't do it. Anyway, my recommendation uh, this week is uh, very much in the true crime realm. And it's a book called uh, Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets, which, for those of you who don't know, uh, was a book written by Baltimore Sun uh, journalist David Simon, who went on to create the TV show Homicide, Life on the Street, based in part on this book. uh, But also things like The Wire and Generation Kill and Treme and lots of other good things. Um, we like him a lot, and we've gone on about it a lot. But this book is incredible. He takes a sabbatical from his job as a newspaper man and uh, the the homicide department of the Baltimore Police, for some reason, let him hang out with them for a year. And when I say hang out, I mean he is in the homicide department. He uh, goes on kind of uh, calls with the cops. He ride, rides out and just kind of looks at bodies and tries to kind of. Watch these guys solve crimes, but also lift the lid on what you know. David Simon likes to talk about the kind of forgotten underclass of American life, people who have been forgotten about and are just kind of left to kill each other. And this is kind of a terrifying look at a city that has three hundred plus murders a year, which is an insane figure. Um, and that this was kind of uh, this year that he writes about was kind of the, the kind of a very crest of a heat wave where the murder rate just spiked ridiculously. I think it kind of pushes 350, 360, which is you know nearly a murder a day, which is kind of crazy, and we're talking uh, kind of pretty much all uh, young black males, and it's just kind of a horrifying, scathing indictment of of kind of uh, American domestic uh, policy and the failure of the war on drugs, which is something that he explores at greater length. In, in things like The Wire but it's a good primer for anyone who wants to read or anyone who wants to watch The Wire because there's so many tiny little bits of authentic detail that appear in The Wire and, and that are kind of from the book like you'll find out why they cut people's ties off uh while they're asleep or, or like you know what a, a red ball red ball murder is and what a black ball murder is and what a stone cold stone cold who done it is. and there's lots of this kind of terminology but also behind that is a, is a kind of a human story kind of these hard men that he follows around who do an incredibly uh, traumatic job and the kind of the humour that they have to have to kind of keep it together. But also it kind of captures these men at like their lowest points where, you know, certain cases just kind of break them emotionally and also kind of has this, this kind of famous murder in the middle of the book called The 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 Angel of Lexington Avenue, which is the, the uh, kind of murder of a young girl um, and the kind of year-long investigation to find out who done it and it's uh it's an incredible book um which kind of uh, really does kind of scale the emotional highs and kind of devastating lows um that true crime and i guess documentary and fiction i guess uh non-fiction can can do
1: yeah and for people who have seen the wire it's also very very Uh, interesting to read it after watching the show and seeing where all those details come from and being able to trace who certain characters clearly resemble Uh, and it's also really great if people are familiar with the tv show Homicide which is a really great show which uh, the first couple of seasons but particularly the first one is pretty much just an adaptation of the book uh, and in all of its uh, kind of seedy glory uh, and its kind of scathing indictment of just how Kind of messed up uh, the the Baltimore was at that point in terms of its murder rate, but also the kind of the, the the wounded nobility of being a cop, having to go out onto the streets to try and figure out why people kill each other. Uh, and it's it's a terrific uh, piece of uh, of nonfiction writing.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, I can't hear the song. It takes two to make a thing go right now. Without <laughs> thinking of a of a of a murder like kind of explosion in in the hot summer of, uh, I think 1989. (laughs) Um, But yeah, uh, you'll read the book. You'll get that, you'll get that reference. Okay. uh, That's your lot on the subjects of true crime. Thanks as always for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher or Player FM. And if you've really enjoyed the show, please leave us a little review. You can be positive if you like, please do. Uh, You can find us on Twitter, which is at SRS underscore podcast. And on Facebook too, we'll be back next week something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me
1: and goodbye from me
0: and goodbye from me